You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 97. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures mate for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. All right, everybody. So today... I'm not actually on this episode, so sorry, but Cassie is going to be joining you along with Shay. Uh, Shay is a vivacious femme switch with over a decade of experience educating, hosting, and performing in the BDSM community. Her background as a healthcare professional informs her passion for risk-aware education. As well as being an international presenter, she's a prominent self-suspender known for unique dynamic rigs and prodigious performances. Shay is the author of Tying and Flying, Bondage for Self-Suspension, creator and writer of the bondage safety website remedialropes.com, producer of the BDSM and Bondage Performance Art Event Twisted Windows, and author of the self-bondage chapter for the book Better Bondage for Everybody. Sorry, for every body, B-O-D-Y. She identifies as a purveyor of perversion, pansexual polyamorous play slut, and alliteration fetishist. I love Shay and also her partner Stefanos have the most colorful bios, I think maybe of anybody we've interviewed. So for those of you who aren't aware, we actually interviewed uh, Shay and her partner Stefanos a while ago in real time, not too long ago in podcast time, actually, because we've been on somewhat of a hiatus with the baby. Uh, But in episode number 86 about pickup play. And that was a fantastic episode. If you missed that one, you should definitely listen in. But on this episode, the reason I'm not around is Cassie and Shay are talking about what it is to be a female dominant, female top. And they're going to cover a whole bunch of things. And I should reword this here because it's actually about being a femme top and a femme dominant. So they're going to cover what topping is, what they mean by being a femdom or a fem top, uh, different topping styles, if the BDSM community is more accepting of non-masculine tops than it used to be, right? Uh, if you're looking at, at topping for the first time and you do identify as a femme, what are some suggested things to try? Uh, is it safer to be a fem top than it is to be a fem bottom? And a whole bunch of other questions, pretty much everything you could want to know about being a femdom or a femtop, right? So you folks will definitely enjoy this interview. And without further ado, let's hop in and I bring you Cassie and Shay. So Shay, thanks for joining us today. And (laughs) I'm really excited because we're covering a topic that's very close to my heart. I'm a I'm a, you know, identified as a female top. That's how I identify. So we're going to talk about sort of being a a femi and being a top, right? And I'm excited to talk about it because I think that for a lot of people, especially when they see things like Fifty Shades of Grey and things like that, 
there's this whole image of masculinity behind being a top. Um, so I'm excited to kind of talk to you about it and get your perspective and uh, learn a bit about you as a top as well. Awesome. I'm excited to chat about it. So what sort of got you first into topping? Is that how you started or did you start with bottoming for your personal yeah. journey? Well, this it is probably a very strange answer, but I got into the scene just exclusively bottoming and being on the submissive side. Um, my partner, Stefanos, and I started out doing bedroom stuff. And I mean, I'd always been turned on by this kind of stuff. Like I remember reading the Anne Rice Sleeping Beauty books when I was, I don't know, 16 or something. And I mean, those are pretty kinky. And those were the parts I liked about it, right? Mm -hmm. And I always saw myself in a bottoming role. You know, I always like saw myself that way. And so we, we got into the scene together, came out into the public scene, started teaching. And uh, when we moved to San Francisco in 2005, uh, the scene was our whole social life. Like we didn't have vanilla friends. We didn't have vanilla hobbies. We were just all kink all the time. Every weekend, all weekend, we'd be at the local play space, volunteering, hosting, teaching classes, all of that. And then, so that was like a couple years, we were just all in on kink. And in 2007, um, I got pregnant with our first child. And something just, there was a switch that flipped in my brain and mm -hmm. I couldn't bottom anymore. It was very strange. I still, you know, I don't know hormones or what it was, but I was a like super heavy bottom um, prior to that. And I liked, mm -hmm. you know, tit torture. I liked doing all kinds of, you know, really, really hard play. And once I got pregnant, like, you know, of course you have like physical limitations and there was things I wanted to be more careful about. But more than that, I just psychologically, I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't, I wasn't turned on by it. I wasn't into it. I, I didn't want to do it. And so there I was and I'm like, okay, well, my entire social life is kink. And now I don't want to bottom. Like, what do I do? <laughs> and the answer was, I guess I should start topping. And so that was how I got started. It was never something I set out to do. It was just kind of the answer to the question of how do I stay involved in this without being on the bottoming side. And I had some awesome friends who were dominant masochists who really like helped me get into you know the topping side. And that was kind of my entry point was people who could, uh, you know, so I could still be sort of in a submissive role, but not being hurt, like hurting them. And that was great and really kind of helped ease me into the role. In a lot of senses, I'm now more of a service top. That's a lot of what I find fun about kind of topping or being in that dominant role. So that's how I got started in it, which is probably sort of weird. No, I think that's a, a very exciting, interesting journey. When we go through pregnancy, things like that, our, our bodies and our minds change. And I don't think a lot of people who haven't had children ever have that like, oh, this could happen. And it, it does. It changes us in a lot of ways. So I think it's actually a really awesome journey, not just from the fact that it's so different, but also from like a learning perspective of like, you may have challenges, things may shift as you develop, you know, a pregnancy or just as a person. Mm -hmm. so that's pretty cool. Yeah. 
you talked a lot about a bunch of different things in there. So I want to sort of define some of these things. So you talked about, you know, being a top for someone who's a dominant and you talked about service topping. And some of our listeners are very versed in BDSM language and some not so much, right? We get kind of the gamut of folks. So for a lot of people, they may be going, well, I get like topping or bottoming, or they might be like, wait, isn't topping the same thing as being a dom? So you want to take a minute and just kind of like spec out the the different uh, definitions of each thing. Yeah, for sure. So the way that I tend to think about it is, uh, and it's a little easier to like visualize, but if you could think about having a uh, grid, you know, so you have a vertical axis and a horizontal axis and they meet in the middle, right? So you can think about there being a continuum. So let's say our vertical axis is uh, sensation. At the top might be giving sensation, at the bottom might be receiving sensation. So that's, you know, giving a spanking or receiving the spanking, right? So that's one axis. The other axis, the horizontal one, you can have, you know, say on the left-hand side, um, so this is the power exchange axis. So on the left-hand side, you could have uh, being submissive or, you know, being in that headspace of giving up control. And on the right-hand side, you could have the dominant side, and that can be, you know, taking control. So we can think about both of these axes and they can exist independently. You can do a scene that is entirely along the power exchange axis that doesn't involve giving or receiving sensation. It just involves exchange of power. And you can do a scene that's entirely along the sensation axis, just involves giving or receiving sensation, and no one's the dominant or submissive in that sense. Where things can sometimes get you know, extra interesting is when you start to go into those squares, you know, you would have the four squares uh, along those axes and mixing power exchange and giving and receiving sensation. So if you have like the classic, the classic kind of dynamic is you have the submissive receiving sensation and the dominant giving sensation, right? So this is kind of our stereotypical, like you were saying, like 50 shades of gray, like it's kind of what you think about when you mm-hmm. think about, you know, kink scenes. Uh, but that's not the only way to exhibit or inhabit these traits, uh, you could also be someone who is dominant, but likes receiving sensation. And of course, these are all fluid, you know, you're not going to be like, pick your place in this box. And this is where you are forever. This is all very fluid and can change from scene to scene from moment to moment from partner to partner, and obviously throughout your journey in kink. So we can have, you know, someone who's a dominant masochist who wants to receive sensation, but also in the power dynamic is the person who's in charge. And then you also have someone who is submissive, but likes to, you know, be the one giving sensation. So they're going to be the one tying you up and doing the violet wand on you and et cetera, but not from a dominant headspace. And those two dynamics, dominant masochist and uh, submissive sadist, as it were, are they're, they're sort of more emerging, like it's not what you would stereotypically think about. And there has been sometimes some stigma, I feel like it's changing. But when you hear about, you know, people kind of talking with some derision about topping from the bottom, I feel like where that comes from is first off, like insecurity, and I have a whole like soapbox about how (laughs) I would never, I never want to hear topping from the bottom. Again, I feel like it's a very 
a stigmatizing thing that discourages bottoms from having, you know, limits and wants, needs and desires and et cetera. But thinking about, I think it's a way to kind of role police and want people to fit into these neat boxes of, you know, you need to be a dominant sadist or a submissive masochist. And that's the quote right way. Uh, But that isn't necessarily a lot of it's about the fit. And so I think some of the problem can come in is because people don't think about these axes as existing somewhat independently from each other. And so someone who wants to be spanked might think, oh, okay, that means that I must be a submissive, but maybe they're not. Maybe they're a dominant masochist. And you can definitely have issues when there's a bad fit or those expectations don't align. So if I'm a dominant masochist and end up with a dominant sadist, unless we've really set the expectations that that's going to be the dynamic, if you're expecting me to be submissive, that's probably not going to work out really well. So thinking about the dynamics in that way, I think can be really useful. Uh, There's also some stigma around being a service top. Like I remember, and I still sometimes will encounter that there's sort of some derision towards, well, you're, you're just a service top. I'm a fucking service top. I, I don't see any, you know, I, I don't, I don't attach any negative judgment to that. Uh, but there definitely still is some areas or some, some folks who might or think that that's like less than in some way. So it's interesting to see how that kind of role policing sometimes plays out. Yeah. And also the, just the development in the community of itself. Like you mentioned the service topping thing. And when I first came into the scene, it was almost like a slur. (laughs) Um, Oh, you're, you're a service top. And it's, it's interesting when you're talking about looking at it in a grid, right? Mm -hmm. Because I don't think really any of us perfectly fit into a grid. I fall more into or perfectly into the like slot of 50 shades of gray or even the Anne Rice novels. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've had lots of conversations with folks about, the shock that I had when coming into the community, I was a woman coming in as a dominant and a top. And that in itself was a little taboo. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But at that point, there wasn't a lot of women in the community that I came into. And then it was, oh, well, you're having your bottom slash slave do electrical play on you. So obviously you're a bottom, but I'm like, no, it feels good. And I told him exactly where to touch me and exactly how to touch me with the violet wand. And I really like it on my sides before he gives me oral. There you go. (laughs) And and so I was like, you know, I'm giving the direction here. So that is still me being the dominant in the situation, but technically he's giving sensation. So he's topping, right? And I think for a lot of us, we don't think about things like I go and I actually pay a professional acupuncturist to do acupuncture and cupping for pain management. She's topping me, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so we don't all fall into these like precise, you know, categories. And I think it's important to recognize that we don't have to like pigeonhole ourselves into one section in order to be recognized as a top or a bottom. Um, and it's okay to be a switch. Like, yeah, that seems to be something that people feel like they need to have a choice of like, I'm either this or that. Um, and it may vary depending on, as you said, your relationship and 
your interactions with others or just scene to scene. So for you, after sort of exploring, you know, the, the topping and trying that out, what did you find you got out of it? Like what started to feed you and really bring you into wanting to do more topping? Yeah, I think a lot of it was, it was super important to me to play with partners who could really communicate that they were enjoying it. It's, you know, the whole idea of uh, mirror neurons, right? Where we feel the emotions of that, that we're seeing in someone else. So this is why, you know, in a horror movie, it's a lot of times scarier to see the characters looking scared than to see whatever it is that they're scared of, right? And so a lot of the enjoyment that I get out of topping is along those lines. It's like seeing somebody really enjoying it and, you know, turned on and, you know, really happy with whatever it is makes me more, you know, turned on and happy and feel rewarding about it. Um, so, which means that as a top, I have pretty specific, you know, there's a subset of people who like to bottom in the sense of, I love to hate it, you know, and they like to, you know, have like fully dive into this, you know, masochistic suffering for all the world looking like everything is terrible, and they hate every second of it, um, which is fantastic. And, you know, as a bottom, that would sometimes be my dynamic and sometimes the way I like to bottom. But as a top, I had to learn that like that really doesn't work for me at all. Like I need to top people who the dynamic they're looking for is really going to show that they're enjoying it um, because that's more what I get out of it. That's awesome. And what have you found is sort of your favorite style of play, the things that you like to do most often? Obviously, you teach a lot on rope and doing rope play, things like that. Is that your favorite form of play or is there other things that are also sort of your your style? I do like rope. I mean, the nice thing about bondage and rope is that it does give you a very structured activity, which is nice for, you know, at a certain point, looking at like a whole toy bag full of stuff and thinking of, you know, how am I going to structure a whole scene? And what am I going to do? In some ways, rope is more straightforward, you're kind of, you know, you have a, a more prescribed, like, okay, here's, here's the things that might be a reasonable sequence, and we can negotiate within a, a much smaller sandbox, as it were, which can be, you know, a little in terms of the labor of like creating a scene that can sometimes for me, at least personally, be a little more manageable than trying to, you know, sort over the whole world of possible things. Um, so I enjoy topping for rope. I enjoy position training is one of my favorites in terms of when I'm topping someone who does like to have that impression of a power dynamic of, you know, me telling you what to do and being in that dominant role, which I can totally enjoy doing there's only so many times you can ask someone to like, go get you a cup of water. I don't know. Like eventually I run out of ideas of things to tell you to do. I really enjoy doing position training as a tool for getting you in the mode of listening and following orders and, you know, doing the things I say and, you know, getting me in the mode of, you know, I'm taking that control and, you know, where the mind, where the body goes, the mind follows. Right. So it can be a really powerful tool to, build headspace doing some different positions. So if, say, I was trying to do topping, right? And it was something I was new to. Maybe this is something that's a little more intimidating because maybe I've only bottomed or maybe I haven't done anything at all. 
what are some suggestions as far as like play to start as a top? Right. Cause there's obviously different responsibilities as a bottom and a top, right? Like not, you know, like as a bottom, you want to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and are aware of, you know, am I okay in the scene and being able to, you know, talk and communicate with your top that you need to stop or go forward. Um, as a top, you have to have a certain level of skill, particularly around certain play, right? There's certain play that I would never advise somebody to like right out the gate, try, um, <laughs> you know, I have some folks who like, they've read some books and things like that. And then we talk and they're like, yeah, the first thing I want to try is an abduction scene. And I'm like, no, you should not be heading up an abduction scene. Maybe be an assistant in that scene. Right. Um, <laughs> or a spectator at least, uh, to start. But what are some good ideas as far as like play that someone who may not have, you know, topped before to try? So I think that one of the, you know, if you have a partner or if your partner can take the role of being a, you know, dominant masochist, if you're someone who's really new to topping, having the person that you're doing, you know, that you're giving sensation to be able to direct that in a very proactive way can be exceedingly helpful. I know for me, I really was scared of, you know, I don't want to damage someone. I don't want to hurt you in a way you don't want to be hurt. Uh, and it was definitely a barrier to get over that. And what helped was having partners who could really encourage me and, oh, that flogger hit was a little bit high. Try a little lower. Uh, make sure that you're going, you know, underneath the butt instead of, you know, don't hit the tailbone. Here's where you should be hitting. You can go harder than that on a scale of zero to 10. If 10 is the most intense, that's still a four. You could work your way up to a six or seven. And like, I loved that. Like getting that very specific instruction was incredibly helpful to me. Uh, and, you know, knowing that that's just a step in the, in the process. If you have your partner who, you know, really wants to do in terms of like thinking about those boxes, you know, ultimately they want to be a submissive masochist. So they want to receive sensation from a submissive headspace. If neither one of you is very experienced, it can be best to kind of stay along one of the axes to begin with before diving into the deep end on some of those other dynamics. So, you know, for starting, can we be just equals and play with sensation, but not like role playing that I'm your dominant in charge of you take it, you dirty slut, whatever thing. <laughs> so I think that that can be very helpful. Absolutely. And I think along with that, like just getting out, maybe doing some, some testing with education and try at nights and things like that. So that way you start to feel a little bit more secure with trying to do things with your partner. Yeah, I mean, if it's at all possible, a lot of what I did to start with too was co-topping. And, you know, co-topping with an established partner, co-topping with someone who was a lot more experienced than I was, and being mentored a bit in that way was extremely helpful in like building my topping skills and my confidence in what I was doing. I'd also encourage like beginning talks to be really explicit about communication and safe words are an awesome communication tool and a lot of times I think are underutilized. So if the only way you're using a safe word is to say like stop everything, I mean, that's a great safety tool and I think, you know, we should do that, but you can use them on so much higher of a level than that. 
So thinking about having a green signal, uh, thinking about which can be, you know, how can my bottom communicate to me that everything is great and I should keep ramping up? And having that in set up as an explicit communication tool can be very helpful. If you're playing with someone who likes to brat, sometimes I like to do <laughs> bratting as a green signal. If I'm telling you, is that all you've got? You know, I thought you'd been working out and I thought you could hit me harder than that or whatever. And you want to make sure, obviously, that that stays within the bounds of fun. And so that's another bottoming tool is to make sure and bottoming skill to make sure whatever it is that you're bratting at your dominant, that you're not picking on them in a way that's going to be not fun and make them feel bad, especially if they're a beginner. But sometimes it can be a good signal, especially for a newer top that, you know, okay, they're, they're still pulling the lion's tail as it were. So it's still, we can still ramp up more. So setting those kind of things, um, sometimes like a call and response in terms of, you know, asking them how they're doing and setting it up as a signal that your partner should always respond with, uh, something that ends with whatever your title is. Say your title is um, goddess. So if I asked you, you know, how are you doing? I'm excellent goddess. I'm wonderful goddess. Uh, your whip is very stingy goddess, whatever. And having the title included being an explicit like green signal, I'm communicating to you that I'm still here and everything is going well and you can ramp up. Versus if I were to not respond verbally, or, you know, as the bottom, or if I were to, you know, oh, I'm okay, then that would be either yellow or red to know, oh, well, we need to check in because something's gone a little bit awry, which can sometimes be easier, especially for if the bottom is newer too, it can be hard to use a safe word. Sometimes there can be some barriers around that. So having a green signal, I think, can be very helpful for both people. Awesome. Yeah, I find it helpful to have when topping, especially someone that I haven't topped, you know, before someone who's new, uh, not only just like a conversation around, like definitely have a conversation around the safe words. Like, you know, this is, you know, our red, even if it's not red, uh, I prefer myself to stick to colors. So I don't have to remember everybody's pineapple (laughs) variety. Um, (laughs) Maybe that's lazy topping, but uh, I'm I'm always like, can we just stick to the color codes? (laughs) Because it's going to be really hard for me to remember what fruit toppings you like. Um, But as far as actually having that conversation of like, when we're having fun, what are some key things that you do? Sort of like how you were saying that green signal. I had one bottom who's like, you know, when I'm really, really having fun, I twitch my butt, you know, because it's like, give me more, give me more. Um, and she's like, and if I'm starting to like, this is not definitely not a red, but like if I'm, if I'm getting to the point where my bottom's getting a bit, uh, a, a bit red and I'm starting to sting, she's like, I'll start to like giggle because like it hurts. So knowing that, right, like gave me the ability to to kind of increase or decrease because sometimes we don't want to stop a scene just because somebody's getting to an ouchy point, right? Like right. just because they're getting to a point where it's maybe that yellow, well, we can push it to a red or we can back down and, and make it something where we give the bottom a little bit of a break or maybe that area and pick back up. But I personally, like when I talk to people and we're negotiating, I like knowing people's cues just because it makes it easier to play within those, in in, in that playground and not necessarily have to wait for a red to just cut things off. 
Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I think, you know, knowing how your partner, yeah, how do you look when you're having a good time is a super great negotiation question or, you know, what might trouble look like other than red or, because a lot of times, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, fight or flight. Um, A lot of times people can have a freeze response, right? Where they're not, and this can be, you know, a big problem within the kink scene and causes a lot of consent issues where people might freeze up in the moment and not be able to use their safe word, um, yellow, red, whatever that might be. So having, you know, a green signal or knowing like, okay, this isn't, this isn't what they look like when they're having a good time. Like we need to stop and and check in more can be, can be a good tool in those situations. Awesome. So any other little tips for someone who might be deciding, I want to start topping? Yeah, I think that it can be obviously taking classes and building community can be fantastic. So like if you have a local, you know, play space, or if there's a local, sometimes there's local femdom groups, those type of things to get peer support and learn from folks who are more experienced and also from bottoms who are more experienced. It's in definitely a, you know, higher risk Thing in some ways when both the top and the bottom are newer and learning. So, you know, having some more experienced folks to, you know, mentor your mentor, teach you, help kind of guide you as you are learning can be extremely valuable. So if somebody was looking for a, a group and, and say you identify either as a woman or as a femi, um, and you're looking for uh, events or groups or things like that, what would be a good way to search for that and look for groups that I might be able to learn from my peers versus feeling like I'm going into like a a cis male space all the time to try to learn skills? Because I know for a lot of people that I've talked to, that's how they feel. They feel like they're, they're having to go to these spaces where there's nobody else built like me. There's nobody else who looks like me. Nobody else who isn't your stereotypical like you know, leather guy. <laughs> right. um, where where can folks look for those things? Like, what's a good way to like find those communities? Obviously, I'm kind of spoiled because I live <laughs> in San Francisco, so for sure. there's like you know 50 gazillion events and numerous you know femdom munches, events, parties, socials, etc. But I think a lot of different locations or communities will have events that are more specifically catering to a uh, femdom type of dynamic. And so looking for those types of classes, if you're into the rope side, looking for hitching bitches in your area, uh, there's, which is a group of kind of loosely collected organization that is about, um, I'm not sure exactly how they define it, but you know, women, topping. And I think, you know, any persuasion of human uh, who wants to be in a bottoming role, and that can be extremely helpful so that you, you know, are learning among peers and not feeling like, oh, this is a bunch of, you know, cishet males and they're, you know, it's it's harder to learn in that environment. So I think like looking for sometimes on FetLife, I'm not sure some you know, some communities are even more using Facebook these days. So it depends where you're at. Uh, the leather community is more on Facebook, actually, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. But the rope community, I think, is still mostly fat life. So searching, you know, femdom 
place that you live on FetLife might be a reasonable place to start. If you have a local venue, you know, do they have a femdom social or munch or party that you could go to? Um, you know, looking for classes that are taught from that perspective. Uh, is there, you know, someone teaching in that dynamic within your community and going from there? Um, I think definitely, you know, different communities will have a lot of different resources. Um, and you can also, like, I always encourage people to be the change you want to see in the world, as it were. <laughs> and if there's like nothing in your area, even if you're mostly a curious beginner, there's no reason that you can't start, you know, if, if you're feeling inspired to do it, like start a munch. I bet there's other people looking for it, you know, start a social, get together with some other people and maybe it starts small, but there's a few people who come out and maybe you're all newer and you can share some ideas and inspire each other. Uh, but I think, you know, there's people who are interested in this and sometimes it just takes one person to make those first steps and you know that person could be you so <laughs> very true and I think that over the years there has been a lot more groups and even events like like women ran events I know you taught last year I was at the same conference with you which was tethered together is like a woman ran event and they went out of their way to make it more of a accepting environment for, for those who identify as women or femi tops. Um, so you can look for events where the organizers are going out of their ways to provide those kind of classes and that kind of atmosphere. Um, and I think that a lot of people neglect that times are changing a bit and you can do things like look on Facebook and meet up. I know, uh, see local to us, we have a lot of things that are like on meetup for um, women rule parties or femdom parties, things like that, that are on meetup and things like that. So um, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so like getting out and, uh, you know, Google, Google your, your area and, and femdom or women rule something like that. But there has been a bigger focus on that and there is like events and things that are, that are maybe not, that's not the whole event, but there is a focus on trying to provide those spaces there. Yeah. And you're right. I think it is changing and people are becoming more cognizant of, you know, I remember going to some rope conferences five, six years ago and there would be hardly any, women teaching from a topping role and you know the women teaching from a bottoming role were not necessarily recognized as such and mm -hmm. there would also be like I, you could go an entire conference and not see a single man in rope and seeing that represented was also pretty uncommon so and i do feel like you know yeah it's slowly changing you know change takes time and looking for and asking for that kind of representation. Like if you have a local conference to you or, you know, local kink space, you know, and you're not seeing the kind of programming that you would like, you know, can you ask them? Maybe they don't know that there's that demand. All of us have blind spots, you know, like when I do programming for events, I am not a woo person. I'm not like a, you know, I don't do like the whole spiritual play thing. Um, and so I know that that's a blind spot that I have. Like, I don't really think about doing that kind of programming because I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. That's not what I do. Um, and so unless I really try and 
have people around me who are like, oh yeah, woo, that's a thing. You need to have classes on that. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that's a thing. Um, and you know, like you said, it's changing, but a lot of these conferences are run by folks who, you know, maybe uh, cis male doms, and they don't necessarily think about the the need for, you know, classes taught from a femdom perspective or classes, you know, that might feature that type of dynamic. So just like asking and making the request can sometimes make a big difference. For sure. So we've kind of talked about how things have changed over the years. Did you ever have challenges when you first started topping um, as far as being uh, a woman and, and being a top? Did you ever have challenges in as far as like in your community or acceptance? I think from a rope perspective, uh, you know, it, it's really changed a lot over the last even five years. And I started tying longer ago than that. And it was definitely challenging specifically within that community to, you know, be respected and to find role models. Uh, yeah, it was definitely tricky. And there can just be the, it's even stuff just that people make assumptions. You know, you come into a rope space as a woman, you know, presenting femme, and there's just the assumption that you must be a bottom. And that kind of stuff can manifest in sometimes subtle ways uh, and sometimes more overt. But I, I do feel that it's changing and that's pretty awesome to see. And there's been more acceptance too of switching. I mean, a lot of the kinkiest people I know are switches. Like <laughs> you know, people enjoy like both sides of it, right? Because we're just like really, really kinky and we like to do all the things. So, and I do think that there's been more acceptance of that too. For sure. I, when I first came in, I particularly, I'm, I'm, you know, we're, we're on different coasts. Um, but from, from the East coast, there wasn't a ton of women who talked. There wasn't a lot of folks that identified as femdoms. There was a very small group of femdoms like in the DC area. And that was like the only femdoms. <laughs> so there was this almost like they don't exist. So when I came into the community, I was faced with the challenge of constantly having people question me like is that really what you want to do and I'm like yes um and it yeah. took me a long time you know as as a woman to be like I do like to hurt people <laughs> like, like it was like okay so I found my community I finally got past this whole like do, am I okay with hurting people right uh I didn't like the whole term sadist it took me years to be like yes I am actually a sadist and, and, to, and to embrace that. So you were talking about the bottoms that, you know, you like, which is more like you, you like that, uh, more communicative and, and knowing what you want uh, versus like the people who are just like, you know, give me hell. I like those bottoms. Those are my favorite bottoms. <laughs> so um, I, I particularly enjoy those who are like, ruin my day and I will love you for it. Um, so it took a long time for me to accept that in myself. Like I, I was like, Oh no, I've got to be a service top. <laughs> like, it was almost like, so it was completely the opposite for me where it was like, you know, uh, that's, that's a challenge for myself. And then getting from that place of like, okay, now I'm accepting it. I am a sadist. I do like to hurt people, but now my community is telling me, are you sure? 
right? Um, like, so it was, it was a little bit difficult. Um, and especially like having, you know, the, the stereotypical, like cisgender male talk coming up and being like, are you sure you, you, you just haven't played with me. And (laughs) I spent a few years dealing with that, but it's interesting to see how much it has changed in terms of representation, in terms of, as I said, like having events, I mentioned Tether together because I thought that it was really amazing to have, you know, a staff of women, you know, the, the, the people who are the art organizers really take those things into account. I won't be making it this year because that is my due date. Um, <laughs> yeah, I won't be there this year. But like that, that was something that when I first came into the scene, I would have never even dreamed existed. It was, as you said, just a rarity to even see a, a woman presenter. Yeah, I think that there's definitely been some major change. That kind of brings me to, to, to a question that I'd like to hear your input on. Sure. So you are very Femi presenting. You're beautiful. Uh, before we started recording, I was talking about uh, your holiday photos that you had up on Facebook, which are adorable. Ah, thank you. Can someone, obviously, this is a rhetorical question, but can someone present very Femi and be intimidating and be a, a good quote unquote top? I think for a lot of folks, they imagine that they have to kind of step into this like masculine role. Uh, I got to put on my boots and wear my camo gear if I want to be a top (laughs) kind of thing. You know, with being a feminine person, can you present that way and embrace that and bring that into your play as a top? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's definitely some uh, pressures that go kind of both directions. And it is interesting, too, that there, there can be, you know, you need to be tough, you need to be this or that. Um, there can also be a tendency sometimes from, you know, sorry to say, but submissive uh, men, what I've found personally is sometimes there can be an objectification and dehumanization um, that, you know, you're mm-hmm. my femdom fantasy fulfillment machine and, you know, should look a certain way within that stereotype. And, you know, which is a whole separate thing. Uh, I think looking at, the community as a whole, like I hope people can embrace being dominant in whatever way that looks for them, whether that's, you know, wearing your uh, pajama dinosaur onesie or (laughs) wearing your stiletto heels or wearing your combat boots, right? Um, And I want to talk really quickly about the, we've used the word femme and I wanted Mm -hmm. to kind of define that in a sense. Um, Yeah. So in terms of like femme is a word from the queer community and I want to be careful that we aren't uh, just using that to mean in a blanket sense, you know, women or, you know, Mm -hmm. people presenting as women. Um, It's definitely a a queer identity to kind of self-describe queer femininity uh, for people of any gender. And that I think is really important. It's a word that comes, you know, from like lesbian bar culture in the 1950s uh, and, you know, kind of as the opposite of butch. Um, and so, yeah, words are containers for meaning. I, and I definitely, it's taken me a while to kind of embrace that word because I also don't want to be, you know, appropriating. And I think it can be a difficult thing in terms of uh, queer culture. And I know that as a person who is in a relationship with a cis male, I've struggled with feeling queer enough. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. definitely something that I think, you know, femme 
or, you know, women doms can, can struggle with. And you can definitely be a woman dom and not be femme in the sense that I'm defining. Uh, but it, it is, you know, self, self-defined as well. And thinking about though, what it means and what, what that word is intended to connotate, I think is important too. Absolutely. And I think it's important, particularly when you start getting into talking to others and how you want to be accepted and how you want to feel secure with things, right? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, if you're not feeling in a place of being able to use like Femi, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe woman feels more appropriate for you. Uh, so you want to use language that for you fits and also communicates to others what you're trying to say. So language is important. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, and I think there's definitely been a move towards, in, in some circles, people have taken femme in a very broad sense to just mean a, a woman or someone who is wearing high heels and makeup. Um, and that's not what it means. So I think, you know, that's important to kind of parse out a little bit. Yeah. Thank you for, for taking the time to explain that um, to everybody. And so I guess with that and, and going into that idea of, of, and I like how you said, whether you're wearing your combat boots or your stilettos or your, or your onesie, because I've actually done all three of those um, <laughs> at some point, um, <laughs> actually. Um, is when you're in a scene, do you have to live up to some sort of image? And if so, who do you, who do you have to live that up to? Like if there is like an image that you have to bring to a scene, um, what should be your standard for defining that for yourself? Uh, I mean, I think it has to be about whatever, you know, whatever is fulfilling for you. Uh, They're thinking about like what, archetypes of uh, feminine dominance speak to you, you know, and you can pull those inspirations from a lot of different, you know, from anything from pop culture to historical figures and thinking about like what is appealing to me about that or, you know, what, if it's about sex, which it isn't always, but like what turns me on, um, what is arousing to me, what is arousing to my partner and thinking about those types of influences can be can be helpful. I think, you know, and of course, all of this is fluid, as you were saying, right? Like you've done scenes from across the spectrum <laughs> of this. And sometimes that experimentation and playing with those different things can be, you know, you might not go into it just already knowing what's going to work for you. It can be a process of, hey, we did this scene when I was wearing my dinosaur onesie and that like was super hot for me. I didn't know it would be, but it was. Um, or, you know, sometimes there's something I think. For beginning tops, uh, it can be really valuable to look the part, whatever that means to you. Uh, there's been some really interesting studies on the way that wearing different clothes affects you psychologically, and both the people looking at you and also yourself. So there were some studies on folks where they had lab volunteers wearing a wearing a lab coat, like a white doctor's coat, and they found that people who wore that felt more focused and they did better at tasks requiring sustained attention. And they were also regarded by people who saw them as being more uh, professional, more put together, uh, more um, in charge, more dominant. So like just thinking about how you can harness that both in terms of having impact on your partner and also just 
impact on yourself. Like you're going to feel different and it's going to, you know, possibly, you know, help you get into a different type of dominant space. If you're wearing your head to toe lace latex with your spike heels versus your T-Rex onesie, right? And either one of those could be an awesome headspace. So it's like, what are you trying to accomplish? Because clothes can definitely change how you feel and change how you might um, kind of manifest uh, traits of that, of the of whatever it is that you're wearing. So being thoughtful about those choices too. Absolutely. We actually did a podcast episode with someone from the vanilla community. She's a, she's a fashion coach. And she was actually talking about how there are archetypes for like sensual clothing. So there's like the bratty clothing and there's the teasing or the dominant or the submissive and how kind of what you were saying, she actually went into talking about how there's all these studies that show just by changing what you're wearing can change what you bring to a particular situation, which in our case that we're talking about is seating, but it can bring those elements and bring that out of you. So I think it's awesome that you're paralleling something someone outside of the community was talking about, right? In terms of how clothing play that role. So I'll actually link to that in the show notes, that episode, just because it's, it's, it's really interesting to see how that paralleled. But I also want to kind of bring up that don't get locked into thinking that a particular thing is going to make you feel a certain way. Going back to the dinosaur onesie, for me, it was not a dinosaur onesie. It was an Eeyore onesie. Um, <laughs> which I wear at camp quite often. That is usually my like, I'm ready to crash and die outfit. And one of my play partners got bratty with me and we ended up having sort of a spontaneous scene. We've seen a lot. We can do that now. So we sort of got into like a spontaneous scene and it got pretty rough and was awesome. And now she's like, I am incredibly intimidated by your Eeyore onesie. <laughs> um, so, you know, don't, don't necessarily get like stuck in, in a particular idea of what you have to wear to, to bring in those feelings. So now, like I get a very different feeling having my Eeyore onesie on around her mm. versus say my husband who when I wear my Eeyore onesie knows that like I'm probably going to go get popcorn and curl in the bed. So those different things can can. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that those particular items or things are going to be the thing that makes you feel good. It, at the end of the day, you want to feel good in whatever you're wearing and whatever you're doing. And also just be mindful of like what you're planning to do. If you're yeah. doing a scene where you're chasing someone over three hills and you're doing like a, a, a predator prey scene or something like that, you might not want to wear stilettos. You <laughs> might not be the best choice. Um, I don't know if you remember there is a, or if you've read it, there's a childhood story. It's something like um, red ballet shoes or something like this. Um, Angelina ballerina, something along those lines. And kind of the point of the story is that this, the main character who's like a young uh, woman has some ballet shoes that she thinks are magical. And she thinks, you know, the reason that she can dance is because she has these special ballet shoes. And, you know, towards the end of the book, like something happens to the ballet shoes. And she's like, Oh, my God, like, I can't dance anymore. And, you know, the the person who gave them to her is like, no, you know, basically, the, the lesson ends up being like, you know, those were just a tool to build your confidence, but there's nothing special about them. Like it all comes from you. And I think that, you know, a lot of times we can use 
like clothes or props in that same way to kind of build mm-hmm. our confidence in our headspace. Um, while also understanding that like ultimately the power comes from us, not from whatever those external things are. So speaking of power, um, and I like the fact that, you know, we, we define sort of there's the difference between, you know, Femi and, and, and being a woman and those terms. But for, for those who may be of smaller composition, a lot of folks who identify as Femi or maybe are women have smaller, you know, body structures and maybe playing with people who are much larger (laughs) Um, (laughs) in size, who are much like physically stronger or have more physical agility, that sort of thing. What is a way that you can still feel like you have that power when you're trying to top somebody who might be able to like, I'm, I'm five foot four, you know, I'm five foot four when not pregnant, (laughs) I'm a big buck 20. And so like, and a lot of the people I play with are larger than me. And I'm not even just talking about those who are penis happers. I'm just talking in general. I play with a lot of people who are bigger than me, trying to embrace that like empowerment of like, I can be like in charge of the seat. I can create a good intimidating or, you know, high sensation scenario mm-hmm. with feeling smaller or feeling, you know, less big. Um, how can how can someone overcome those like body differences? I think that's a super good question. And the answer, you know, obviously will depend on the the exact person and you know what works for their dynamic. And obviously a uh, a dynamic where you want to wrestle and overpower someone is a lot different from I'm gonna be a you know meek and subservient uh, partner right off the bat. So knowing like, do I have to prove my dominance or are you already giving that to me? I think, you know, is a starting place for that. Um, Levels are super important. Like there is definitely a really real psychological effect of being lower than someone else. And so even when there's a big height or size difference, you can harness that you know, making your partner be on their knees is like the classic one, but it's a classic for a reason, um, you know, feeling smaller. Um, there was a really cool study in the uh, Journal of Neuroendocrine Biology, and they looked at the psychological effect of power poses. So this was things like assuming a kind of Superman pose with your hands on your hips and your shoulders broad and your legs spread and, you know, like really taking up space mm-hmm. uh, versus being in a more submissive pose, which was things that were kind of closed up on your body, um, folded in, and those types of postures. And they found it made a really profound difference in how people felt. Um, They also, for the initial study, looked at hormone levels and thought that perhaps the power poses increased testosterone, which made people feel more dominant, and decreased cortisol, which was a stress hormone, while the submissive poses did the opposite. However, there's a bit of a replication crisis in psychological science right now, and the experimenters who tried to replicate this study didn't find the hormone changes. So, you know, science, like you do. But the psychological effects were still found. And so thinking about even as a smaller human, how you can open up your body and really, you know, square your shoulders and, you know, open up your legs and, you know, hold yourself in a lot more space um, might make you feel more dominant and powerful. And having your partner in a more submissive body posture, whether that's like kneeling or, you know, having their hands behind their back or 
in a compacted space uh, can kind of help build that power dynamic, even if there's a huge size differential. For sure. And I found that, you know, for myself with being like smaller stashier, one of the things that I recommend for people is if you're trying to get some of that like feeling of I'm able to control your body and things like that, start from a a space where your bottom is already uh, handicapped, right? Like already have, has, you know, some, some, some things where they can't run or get away. Like there's no better way to like, get that, you know, dominant feeling than them being restrained already, like, because you're, you're able to, to do that. So taking some of those things in of like, the scene doesn't start until you're locked up. Well, now you're locked up. <laughs> right. Now, now I can manipulate you and move you. Yeah. And that can be something like cuffs or some bondage or good old chastity play, you know, cock, cock bondage, cock, uh, you know, cock cage or something like that. I was reading something, I can't it was on Twitter, saying something like, you know, isn't chastity training basically just crate training for penises? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but even something like that, even though, you know, physically it doesn't really impede them from doing a lot of things, it might psychologically have a really powerful Mm -hmm. effect. So, you know, what could those things be? So anything else that you think that is important for someone who may be exploring, getting into topping, um, should know? I would say, you know, it's always a good idea to go slow. It's better to ease into something and you can always go harder the next time. But if things went too far, it's a lot harder to, you know, dial that back sometimes. So encouraging people to be patient with the process. It's going to be a learning process. It's going to be exploration and being patient with themselves and their partners as they're, you know, learning and growing into a role like this. Um, and hopefully, you know, building community, finding a mentor, uh, learning, taking classes. There can be really great online resources. Kink Academy has a ton of fantastic clips on various topping techniques and femdom and a very diverse presenter roster. So looking at, you know, even if you can't take classes in your local area, maybe some of the online resources as well. So yeah, those those are some of the things I would look at as you're starting out. Well, Shay, thank you for joining us. I would normally say we would start our speed round, but you already did that with with Stefanos the last time you were on. Yes, I we we had a lot of fun doing the speed round. <laughs> so, thank you for coming on again. Just getting on with me and not Rigel because I felt like this was a better just space to have two women come on and talk about this and and chat. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Yeah, it was really great to to chat with you and connect over all the dummy things. So <laughs> thank you for that. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask, or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1. 